G'day everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Road Less Travelled Podcast. My name is Nikki Shea and for the next little while we'll be stepping back in history plus we'll be of course on the Road Less Travelled finding out plenty of destinations of choice right around Australia. This week though we're in the state of Victoria. I don't know how you've been going through the various lockdowns but I think uh, Victoria's had about four or five of them that we've gone through. So if you're currently in lockdown or you've just come out of lockdown you have my sympathies. I know exactly what it's like. Um, My normal regular day-to-day employment uh, meant that I was able to still go to work as an essential worker so uh, that was pretty good and I know a lot of people have lost their jobs and are struggling in the employment sector so uh, my thoughts go out to you and if you are doing it tough please reach out and seek some support there's plenty of people out there such as Lifeline Beyond Blue or just simply pick up the phone and have a chat to a friend and I do have to say a massive thank you to the people who've reached out to us to offer support some feedback on the Road Less Travel podcast brought to you through Fat Cat Media. A lot of people said, hey, just before you go ripping into each episode, let's have a bit of a chat. So um, here's my little chat section, only joking. So yes, I am still doing motocross coaching. A lot of people have asked that question. I'm still doing media management and press releases, consultancy and advice, um, seminars and motivational speaking, and of course this podcast, The Road Less Travelled, and race race resumes. And you can also pick my brain pick my brain what are you talking about well this service came about from endless requests from people who wanted to pick my brain hence we created a pick my brain service where people can utilize an hour with me and fat cat media for a strategy session where we can look over proposals and offer sound professional industry advice based on over 25 years in motorsport and the relevant context and the experience to back it up Race resumes step one of obtaining sponsorship is a race resume and write a biography Folks can take advantage of our professional writing and massive mailing list of media outlets and sporting companies and they can complement this with professional photography, video or audio clips to send out with potential sponsors or partners. And whilst we do not go out and obtain sponsorship for you, a race resume is the first step for you to build relationships and foster ongoing partnerships with potential sponsors. Commentating and event hosting and emceeing, well, as a lot of you may know from WA, uh, with over 10 years commentating throughout WA and Australian motocross and motorsports, Fat Cat Media prides itself on providing sound industry knowledge plus versatile media experiences and our commentators can interpret what's happening on and off the track with reliable information obtained from within the industry when it happens and as it happens. Fat Cat Media's trackside commentators have the ability to develop a perspective on the subject through research, experience, interviews, and, of course, by attending events. Now, seminars and motivational speaking, you can be inspired. Look, I really, really enjoy and receive a lot of satisfaction and overwhelming feedback in conducting seminars. And this involves giving motivational speeches and inspiring people to challenge themselves and become better at what they want to become better at. Relying on years in the media plus a life-changing health issue, I can challenge and transform my audience. And if you truly and honestly want to help someone reach their true potential, stop answering all their questions and solving all their problems. Jump on board and get in contact with me for further information. The coaching and development schools, I conduct schools and clinics across various metropolitan country clubs throughout Australia. We cater our motocross coaching from beginners right through to intermediate junior riders and the coaching clinics are solely catered and designed for smaller numbers to really effectively support each rider and hone in on their particular requirements. And whilst our schools are designed for two days right through to five day camps with multiple 
AG accredited coaches, giving individual coaching, drills, training, development and feedback throughout the duration. And consultancy and advice, what is it? Well, catering for a variety of platforms, whether it be as a racer, business owner, or for those within the motorcycle and motorsport industry, have you considered your future? It's really important to focus on what's ahead. Well, is it? Absolutely, yes. How do you expect to move forward if you have no benchmark, no goals, no achievements, and no strategic plan and direction on how to achieve your achieve your goals in the industry? It is absolutely mind-boggling crazy how folks will fork out thousands of dollars on bikes, equipment and gear, yet they have no clear plan on how to execute their year ahead of racing. And media management and press releases, I've been doing this a long time and with this comes the message to get across in a professional manner. We offer a range of affordable packages to suit every event and budget. Concisely written and targeted press releases draw media attention to newsworthy events and we can also manage your event in a professional and affordable marketing strategy. So there's some of the things that we do with Fat Cat Media. For those of you who know, I was um, we operated the website Perth MX, which is a motocross and off-road um, Website in WA, uh, at one stage we got it up to number three in the country for motorcycling news, so it's a pretty big achievement. And I was the trackside commentator, did a lot of live shows, uh, started the very first MX Weekly uh, radio show in Australia, the very first, I can tell you, the very first M motocross uh, podcast um, was done by me, started back in 2009, 2010, and we went through Sport FM in WA and put it on the radio waves, and it was absolutely phenomenal. So you listen to all these podcasts now for motocross and dirt bikes and off-roads, and there's so many of them. When we started out, there was nothing. No one ever knew what a podcast was. So that's just some of the things that we do with Fat Cat Media. If you want to follow the program, you can do that through Facebook. Uh, just search through Facebook for Fat Cat Media, and you'll see a list of the podcasts there. You can also listen to the podcast through Spotify, through uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. So uh, those platforms uh, where you can listen to the show. And as everyone says, if you're if you're a podcast listener, everyone says the same thing. Please like, review, and share, and give a rating. Um, that helps the podcast that you're listening to grow. So I'd really appreciate it if you could do that to whatever platform you're listening to the Road Less Travel podcast. If you'd give a review, uh, a like and uh, share it would be greatly appreciated thank you very much for those people who've already done so and if you want to interact with me you can drop me an email fatcat with a ph so fatcat at iinet.net.au or you can drop me an sms on 042-752-8467 or reach out to us through fatcat media on instagram and of course as i mentioned previously on facebook and in the not-too-distant future, we'll be relaunching the Fat Cat Media website as well, which is fatcatmedia.com.au. Now, while we've just been touching on the whole COVID thing and lockdown and so forth, it's meant a lot of border restrictions and a lot of people have been unable to travel. Those people also have been the ones that have been trapped with air travelling as well. So there's been lengthy periods where people have been forced to stick out where they are. They can't travel back home or cross borders or all that sort of stuff. So it has been quite restrictive on where you can go. So it's also opened up opportunities if you have been able to travel within your own state or your own uh, area that they've done with, um, I know in Victoria they had a, a metro lockdown and then they had the regional area as well which meant that uh, you could travel out of the metro area and into the regional Victoria which is what we did earlier this year we traveled from 
our location in the Yarra Valley out to Bendigo and we stopped at Bendigo for a, a couple of nights and in particular one of the caravan parks uh, just on the outside of Bendigo in Avondale in Maiden Gully just outside of Bendigo. They had a ripping camp kitchen um, there as well which um, if you jump onto our Facebook page and have a look through, search through uh, Bendigo you'll see some uh, images of camp kitchens and that's something that we'll talk about on upcoming uh, episodes will be camp kitchens uh, to utilise them at caravan parks. So back to Bendigo, we stopped at the Central Deborah Gold Mine, which is a non-active gold mine these days and a tourist attraction in the heart of Bendigo. It was listed on the Victorian Heritage Register in November 1999. The mine was opened in 1939 by the Central Deborah Gold Mining Company during a 1930s revival of the gold industry, extending uh, an existing 108-foot shaft for many years earlier with new machinery. It was one of the last mines to open on the Bendigo goldfields and one of the few to stay open during the Second World War. It was expanded during 1945 and 1946 with extensions and new machinery. It reached its maximum depth, which is now recorded as 402 metres during the 1940s. It closed in November 1954, having produced 29,865 ounces of gold in its lifetime and the closure of the North Deborah mine two weeks later marked the last mine in Bendigo to close. But it was reopened in 1986 as a tourist attraction for underground tours with its shaft being widened to allow for larger lifts. It was preserved and restored by a local heritage organisation, the Bendigo Trust, which also restored the city's tramways. It still retains its original buildings and much of its fittings and mining machinery. And Jeff and I had an opportunity... As I mentioned, tourists can venture down into the underground tunnels of a real gold mine that operated to do that particular tour. But whilst there, you can explore the fascinating museum, the blacksmith shop, check out the crusher and other machinery, pan for gold, and learn all about how the mine operated and what was life life was what life was like for the miners. Thoroughly recommended. Jump again, jump onto our Facebook page, and you can have a look at the Central Deborah Gold Mine. Uh, the lot, the uh, non-active gold mine, now a tourist attraction, and uh, they've pump plenty of money tourist dollars into it to uh, to keep it um i guess uh, interesting we'll say also located in bendigo is victoria hill that was one of the richest areas of the bendigo gold fields it had many successful mines including lancel's 180 and the victoria quartz once the deepest gold mine in the world now today, on a walk through the site, you can see the remains of several phases of mining activity from an open-cut mine of the 1850s to a quartz-crushing battery used in the 1930s. And it's very interactive. Um, I took Rocco the dog for a walk through there and um, probably a good hour just wandering around having a look at the sites. It's open during the day. They close it and lock it all up at night, but you're free to wander around. There's also mullock heaps, a poppet head and the foundations of a massive winding engine. The on-site signs explain all the features there. And as you have the opportunity to walk through the site under your own steam, you think about the thousands and thousands of miners who over a period of 80-odd years worked the richest reefs beneath Victoria Hill without the comforts that we've got today. And Bendigo was one of the world's richest gold fields. Between uh, 1857 and 1954, there was 829 mining companies that produced up to 22 million ounces of gold. Just absolutely phenomenal. This represented a quarter of all gold mined in Victoria in that period and about one-tenth of the total yield from within Australia. 
The rich New Chum Reef passed through the centre of Victoria Hill. And in 1871, the Bendigo Goldfield Registry described the area as far-famed and well-renowned Victoria Hill, the backbone of the township of Bendigo. In 1851, Bendigo was part of an extensive squatting run known as Wavenswood. News of the discovery of gold at Ballarat and Castlemaine reached Ravenswood in the winter of 1851. And no doubt gold was a topic of much conversation in the Shepherd's Hut near Bendigo Creek with happy Jack Kennedy, the overseer on the Ravenswood run, his wife Margaret and a resident shepherd soon finding payable gold. By that Christmas, there were 600 diggers at Golden Point, the site of Bendigo's first gold rush. When this area was worked out, the diggers rushed the surrounding gullies, being Pegleg, Adelaide, New Chum, California, and by the winter of 1852, they'd pushed the field northwards to the Whipstick Forest and eastward to Epsom. During this period, gold was won by washing shallow or what we call alluvial gravels and clay. News of rich finds brought thousands and thousands of hopeful hopeful immigrants to Victoria's goldfields. Bendigo attracted more than its fair share. Men of almost every nationality, men of position and means, mixed with adventurers, honest toilers, worshippers, all bent on the same object – the acquisition of the precious metal. And by 1854, these diggers had won over 1.1 million ounces of gold. From 1853, some miners turned their attention to the huge outcrops of gold-bearing quartz which promised wealth to those with the strength and determination. And it was hard work. Using hammers or picks to smash the gold free of the quartz, they soon recognised the potential of Bendigo's reefs. By 1865, reefing, as it was called, had replaced alluvial mining as the main focus of activity on the goldfield. So between 1853 and 1861, 16 claims were established on Victoria Hill, and one miner wrote of the excitement in Bendigo as these claims tapped new richer reefs. Victoria Hill is passing belief and inviting incredulity. It's like an eastern tale within so small an area there should be an extracted of plethora wealth beyond the dreams of avarice. Man, that's unreal. I love the gushing narratives of the time. You are able to walk back to Victoria Hill. You're able to walk through what is called Ballastart's Open Cut Mine. Um, He was German-born and a veteran of the Battle of Waterloo and the California Gold Rushes. Christopher Ballastart bought his claim from two black Americans in 1854. After working the reef in this open cut, he sank a shaft on his claim and at 300 feet, which was 90 metres, he struck a rich reef. He celebrated his success with a champagne luncheon attended by the Governor of Victoria, Sir Henry Barclay. And they say, amidst the blaze of 1,200 wax candles and the, I can't even pronounce that word, the coruscation of the gold bespangled walls of this orifice cavern, Again, gushing terms of the day. He swore that his mine would yield a tonne of gold, and by 1860 he found gold worth £243,000, an absolute fortune in those days. When he died in 1869, Ballastat was known to be the father of quartz reefing, his success having encouraged others to explore the region's deep reefs. As you walk through this open cut, you can see the white or brown lines of quartz in the pink, brown and grey sedimentary rock, and the quartz contain rich deposits of gold. 
at the turn of this century, or sorry, the turn of the last century, the 20th century, the site was one of the premier mines in the Benigo Goldfields. In 1908, it boasted the world's deepest shaft of 4,478 feet, which was 1,365 metres down. The shaft reached a depth of uh, 1,406 metres, so just over a kilometre, almost a kilometre and a half in 1910. In 1857, eight small claims in this particular area had been merged to form the gold, uh, the Victoria Reef Quartz Mining Company. Another merger in 1877 led to the formation of the Victoria Quartz Company. For the next 30 years, the mine produced consistent profits. In 1910, water burst into the claim, flooding the shaft and halting operations. And that was a, a common occurrence. The deeper that they were going for mining, they would find that they would have to continuously po- um, pump out water. And going back to the Central Deborah Gold Mine, that is uh, something that they continually do now. They pump out enough water overnight to fill up an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Um, they said if they didn't pump out the water, the mine would just be absolutely flooded so it just shows you the uh, natural artesian water source underneath the uh, the earth is certainly uh, taking its toll on, on mining. So, yeah, just a little bit of useless information. You never know. The uh, company bailed water for six months, then handed the mine over to the uh, tributaries who worked the upper levels for the share of the profits. The mine closed in 1913, having produced over 48,000 ounces of gold and paid dividends of £99,600, again a fortune back in 1913. At the turn of the century, this particular area, Victoria Hill, was the site of one of the premier mines in the Benigo Goldfields. We know that uh, at Victoria Quartz. The Poppet Head is the fourth to be erected on this particular site, and between 1900 and 1920 it stood as the Cox, you could be careful how you say that, Cox Pioneer Mine in Bendigo. During the 1920s it was re-erected at Mount Bunyong near Ballarat and was used as a fire observation tower and a telecommunications tower. In 1955, it was re-erected at Victoria Hill. Again, you can jump on our Facebook page and you'll be able to see the pictures that we took when we wandered through. Now, poppet heads were used to haul men and equipment up and down the shaft. At this time, the shaft was divided into three compartments, one for the miner's cage, another for the bailing tanks, and the third known as the ladder shaft for communication and ventilation. Bendigo's gold was locked in quartz reefs below the earth's surface, as we know, so we know that miners dug the shafts in tunnels to reach the reefs. At first, they used hand tools, which would have been bloody hard work, then rock drills powered by compressed air to bore holes into the rock. These holes were rammed with explosives. After blasting, the rock was hauled to the surface. The worthless rock, known as mullock, was dumped in massive heaps near the mine, and the gold-bearing rock was taken to a crusher or a stamping battery. The miners removed about 5,400 tonne of rock for every 500 feet or 152 metres of tunnel or shaft. Now mining at that depth needed to be sophisticated and it needed sophisticated equipment so bailing tanks to remove underground water from the shafts and powerful winding machinery to haul the gold bearing rock to the surface. Below ground conditions were harsh and sometimes dangerous. Sanitary facilities were primitive or non-existent. Water seeped through cracks in the rock, making conditions incredibly humid. Miners worked a 10-hour shift in the air that was thick from the fume of candles, the smell of human bodies, and the haze of smoke and dust from blasting and drilling. Poor ventilation and unsanitary conditions contributed to the spread of tuberculosis, and I think they pronounce it... I don't know how they pronounce it. P-H-T-I-S-I-S. 
they noted this miners' complaint. Uh, is it phytosis? That'll do. Phytosis. New word Nicky just made up. Phytosis. During the 1880s, deaths from respiratory conditions were 50% higher in Bendigo than elsewhere in Victoria. Now, the 180 miners I mentioned earlier, um, there's brick and granite foundations uh, left of what was Lancel's 180 mine, originally housed inside a two-storey timber engine house, supported massive winding drums which hauled men and equipment up and down the mine shaft. Now, George Lancel purchased this mine from Theodore Bellstrut for £30,000 in 1871. He called his claim the 180 because it occupied 180 yards on the rich New Chum Reef. Between 1888 and 1899, the mine was reputed to have won gold to the value of £1 million. What a fortune in 1899. In 1895, the shaft was down to 968 metres, so just under a kilometre, the deepest mine in Australia. When it closed in 1907, the mine yielded over 77,000 ounces of gold. During the depression of the 1930s, the price of gold almost doubled. This and the high rate of unemployment led to a revival of mining throughout Victoria. And in 1934-35, the Bendigo gold fields produced a third of Victoria's total yield. Between 1933 and 1949, this 20-head battery crushed quartz for several companies, including the Little 180 Mine, the New Chum Cycline and the Bendigo Crushing Company. It was manufactured locally by Thompsons of Castlemaine in 1933. The stamps were lifted and dropped, pulverising the quartz into sand-sized particles, and after crushing the sand passed over a series of tables, which were mercury-coated plate tables that amalgamated the gold and the rippleboard tables that trapped most of the gold or heavy minerals. A mine could operate successfully if it produced one-third of an ounce of gold for every tonne of quartz bought into the crusher. But in 1949, their battery fell silent, ending 30 years of mining on Victoria Hill. Over the next decade, rising wages, falling profits and a shortage of skilled labour and materials tested the last of Bendigo's mining companies. The closure of the North Deborah gold mine in 1954 saw the end of over 101 years of continuous quartz mining on the Bendigo goldfields. So if you are in Bendigo, jump into Victoria Hill Historical Mine Reserve. It's the site of Victoria's deepest gold mine at uh, 1,406 metres. It's open daily for inspection, uh, 9am to sunset eastern uh, daylight savings times and 9am to 5pm in eastern standard time in uh, the heart of uh, Bendigo. It's absolutely brilliant. You just wander around at your own leisure and have a look at everything. There's artifacts there, as I said, stamping battery as well. It's good stuff. So from Bendigo, we headed to Echuca along the Midland Highway. And when we went to Echuca, it was right in the heart of the summer school holidays. Um, and I think it was New Year's Eve we actually pulled into Echuca. Well, I think it took us about 20 minutes to get through Echuca. We were going to stay there, but it was just abs. It was like Burke Street. It was jam-packed. As I said, it took us 20 minutes to get through there with the caravan. We looked at each other and said, um, blow this for a joke, let's get out of town. So we headed towards Kahuna on the um, Murray Valley Highway, uh, travelled through Kahuna, through Kerrang, and we camped up for the night at Swan Hill. And by this stage, when we visited this particular area, as I said, New Year's Eve, uh, was New Year's Eve or was the day before New Year's Eve? I think it was December the 29th or December 30th. It was stinking hot. I think it was 38 degrees and we said, blow this for a joke. We wanted to camp by the Murray River. And having Rocco the Wonder Dog with us, uh, we were kind of limited to where we could camp in caravan parks. So 
We went to one caravan park. No, uh, they didn't take dogs during the summer holidays. They normally do take dogs, but because of the uh, holidays, no, they couldn't. We went to another one. They were booked out. Um, we wanted to stay for two nights. You could have one site and then move on. We said no. We found another caravan park uh, sort of on the outskirts of town. And that was the Swan Hill Holiday Park, and that was absolutely awesome. Um, as I said, um, we got in. It was December the thirtieth. That's right. You can enjoy warm and really friendly service from Judy and Peter at their quiet, shady park with spacious sites. You can also get an ensuite cabin if you want. Uh, they'll ensure a relaxing holiday or a really enjoyable overnight stay. They offer caravan and fifth wheeler servicing and repairs on site as well and pet friendly with plenty of shade, peace and quiet. So I can thoroughly rec- recommend the Swan Hill Holiday Park. And while you're there in Swan Hill in uh, Victoria, right up on the on the border of uh, Victoria and New South Wales with the Murray River sort of dividing it, you can head into the feature-packed river precinct, which is where all the history, recreation and the natural environment literally sit side by side at Swan Hill. It's great. It's along a gentle two kilometre stretch of the glorious Murray River, you can walk along there with the dog, what we do, you can explore the wetlands teeming with native birds and animals ride or walk along the riverside tracks you can fish for cod, burn energy at the playground, skate parks, settle in for a shady picnic or barbecue, swim in a pool, launch a canoe, see contemporary art and explore the past and the world famous pioneer settlement at Swan Hill, it's right in the heart of the town centre, not far away from great dining and picnic supplies, local art, jewellery makers and all the kinds of boutique shopping in this thriving regional centre. And you can have a look at the PS Pie app, which was built at Madam in South Australia in 1896. What is it? It's a paddle steamer. And despite her great size, she's almost 30 metres long and 4.8 metres wide. She had a very shallow draft, which means she can float in less than a metre of water. In her early days, she was used as a floating general store. She travelled the lower Murray River, stopping in at small towns and farm stations along the way. And inside, she had a serving counter, a store section and a separate drapery at the rear of the lower deck. The crew slept on the upper deck. The PS Piap travelled 500 kilometres each week, selling goods to the settlers at over 60 settlements and landing places along the Murray River. Now, one-hour cruises depart from the Pioneer Settlement Wharf each day, taking you upriver past the Big Fork Riverside Caravan Park, the Murray Downs Marina and the historic Murray Downs Homestead. Now, um, there's also another one there, another paddle steamer there called the Gem. And if only this paddle steamer, Gem, could talk. It's a beautiful paddle steamer, has had a really colourful and sometimes chequered history of work, travel and now restoration. She's known as the Queen of the Murray and was built in Moama in 1876. By 1882, she was taken to Goolwa in South Australia to be upgraded for passenger service. Once there, she was beached, sawn in half by hand and two parts pulled apart by bullocks to allow an extra section to be inserted. Once in surface, the GEM's lower deck was used for cargo, the engine, the dining room and the galley, the middle deck for passenger accommodation and the top deck for the wheelhouse and the crew. The GEM also had a smoking room on the upper deck for men and a music room for ladies in the middle deck. Now, the Pioneer Settlement purchased the steamer in 1962. It was expected to take just 10 days to tow her behind the PS Oscar from Goolwood to Swan Hill, but low river levels in 62 left the Gemini crew stranded for long periods, and it eventually took eight months to make the journey. Today, the PS Gem is undergoing progressive restoration. Most recently, she was surrounded by a new timber deck with picturesque gazebo, and you can wander around all three decks and just get a glimpse of what it was like 
in the heyday. So if you have the opportunity, Swan Hill, the pioneer settlement, is one to check out. And there's plenty of other things you can do in Swan Hill. You can hire a boat and go up and down the river. You can go fishing. Plenty of walks to be had um, and very dog-friendly. Rocker was able to go walking along with us everywhere and, and jump in the river and have a swim. So a, a really great um, area if you have the opportunity to visit. Now, while there's plenty to see and do around Swan Hill, between Kerrang and Swan Hill is a little place uh, called Lake Boga. And it is a tiny little place. I think it's probably about 20K, 15, 20Ks outside of Swan Hill. And you can discover wartime history in the heart of the Murray River south of Swan Hill in Victoria. Hidden under the canopy of a modern hangar, you will discover what the Imperial enemy couldn't find. The secret number one of flying boat repair depot in Australia used during the Second World War. Now, Lake Boga is, um, uh, there's a series of lakes around that, in the, around that area. Lake Boga is quite a, a large lake. And under the guidance and dedication of the Lake Boga Lions Club, this remarkable museum takes us back to the 1940s where the Catalinas, Catalina flying boats, were more common on the lake than the speedboats are that we see today. Many artefacts have been recovered from the lake, including the concrete moorings, which I photographed and they're in the, on our Facebook page. They each weigh in at two tonnes, complete with the date of instru- uh, instruction. The date of construction has been put in the, in the top of them. So while you're there, make sure you explore inside the rebuilt A2430 Catalina flying boat, or you can go underground into the secret communication bunker, where one can really gain an, gain an understanding of the importance of this base held during the Second World War. And for those wanting to use today's more modern communication devices, you can enter into the command centre and be briefed with a short film depicting the events that occurred during the period. After taking it all in, allow yourself time to relax while you come back to the 21st century and what better way than do it with a latte overlooking the beautiful lake. So Lake Boga in Victoria, just outside of Swan Hill. It's just absolutely unbelievable. It's the Catalina Flying boat museum so please make sure you check it out jump on to uh, google and check out the wikipedia page for it because uh, i didn't know anything about it. it was the number one flying boat repair depot in australia used under secrecy during the second world war and uh, there's a um, dirty great big rebuilt catalina flying boat in the inside of the hangar as part of the mu- uh, museum display Speaking of Catalina flying boats, I wanted to talk to you and we might leave that for another episode or should we do it today? You know what, we'll do two-part series. We will do part two next time. Uh, we'll continue on the road less travel on the story of the Perth to Salon Catalina flying boats which were based at Matilda Bay in Perth and if you, for my Perth friends if you have the chance head to the RAAF Museum at Bull Creek where you can see a real live Catalina flying boat in WA as well. So we'll do that next week. We'll talk about the... Um, um, the Perth to Salon, uh, which is now Sri Lanka, if you don't know where Salon is, Sri Lanka, Catalina Flying Boats, and they were based at Matilda Bay in Perth, and we'll talk about part two of this next week on The Road Less Travel. Thanks so much for your company. If you've liked what you've heard, please uh, give us a, a like and a review, a five-star rating. We'd greatly appreciate it on whatever podcast platform you're listening to the show. We'd really appreciate it. Feedback, as always, you can drop me an email, an SMS, or you can drop me a message on Facebook or Instagram. That's it for this week's show. We'll come back to part two of the Catalina Flying Boats next week on The Road Less Travel. Thanks so much for your company. I really do appreciate it. Bye for now. Oh,